Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first joining us is our good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also uh, affiliated with the Center for a New American Security. He is one of the world's leading experts uh, on the Russian military, as well as uh, unmanned capabilities around the world, including Russia's. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Fargo. Great to be back. Uh, indeed. Great to have you back on. Uh, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage from the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sam, great to have you back on. As always, uh, the war is taking another dimension. Uh, obviously, any conflict is, uh, you, you know, both sides get a vote uh, on how it unfolds. Uh, but it's clear that the U- Ukrainians have uh, been on a bit of a roll. There's the offensive happening at Militopol. Uh, there was the strike on the Wagner Group headquarters in Luhansk uh, that was uh, deadly. There was an air ba- an attack on an airbase uh, inside uh, Russia. Uh, and even speculation that Ukraine was behind a recent fire uh, at one of Moscow's largest uh, shopping malls. Uh, and then, you know, maybe Ukrainian fingerprints also on the assassination of a former uh, uh, Belarusian uh, official. At the same time, Russia has deepened its alliance with Iran, plunging Odessa into darkness over the weekend. Br- bring us up to speed on the interesting elements on how this conflict continues uh, to unfold and the role, actually, that long-range strike UAVs are playing on both sides. Well, there's continued fighting near Bakhmut area. In fact, it's it's very grinding World War I-style combat uh, in the Donetsk uh, and in the general Donbass area. Uh, Russians are trying to use the newly mobilized forces to um, to continue attacking Ukrainians to basically fight house for house, street for street. Uh, and uh, it's very grinding, slow advance. Russians are claiming incremental advances and Ukrainians are repositioning their forces in that area. Earlier on, if you remember, President Putin actually designated the entire um, Donbass area as key to Russia's national security and one of the goals for Ukraine invasion in the first place. That is after um, the, the mission, after the war changed from uh, basically uh, regime change to the Donbass area. And so Donbass was once again in, uh, in sites, uh, it's in the crosshairs and Russians are devoting considerable resources there. The fighting there is slow. Of course, the weather has changed from summer and fall. It is now winter. Um, and uh, Russians are hoping to sort of grind away at the Ukrainians. You've indicated some of the key uh, strikes that have happened over the weekend. Casualties are inevitable in this war. And with Wagner uh, so far on the front lines in the Donbass area, it is going to incur casualties. And in fact, it has. Uh, and so another interesting element here in this war is President Putin saying last week that this is going to be a long-term conflict. And he basically hinted that his country and the world should prepare for uh, long-term warfare over Ukraine and in Ukraine proper. And then, of course, there was an announcement that 
Iran and Russia are deepening their military technological cooperation. They're deepening their military ties. There's going to be a quid pro quo for Iranian assistance to Russia with drones. Apparently, U.S. intelligence indicated that Russia may be supplying Iran with advanced weapons. And for Russian military, it needs to keep up the pressure on the Ukrainians. Uh, and it continues to keep the pressure on the civilian population, plunging a lot of people into darkness and cold in the midst of the winter. Again, in the hopes that Ukrainian population uh, will, uh, will suffer and uh, s- somehow try to influence its own government in one way or another. Uh, this type of attack is going to, uh, I think, persist throughout the winter as Russia regains uh, its numbers of loading munitions, either from Iran or starts manufacturing them in-house. Russia uh, wants to essentially send waves and waves of these drones against Ukrainian military and civilian targets to keep up the pressure. So these are some of the main, uh, I think, uh, events that have happened over the past week. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we had uh, Victor Boot uh, was uh, traded, obviously, for Brittany, uh, U.S. basketball star and Olympian Brittany Griner. Uh, and it was interesting that as soon as Boot uh, was uh, released, right, I mean, the famous merchant of death, he said, I'm happy to go and fight in Ukraine and, and, and uh, you know, fight against Ukraine and, and help uh, help Russia, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, an, an interesting dimension, uh, as if anybody thought that he was going to retire quietly in his dacha uh, somewhere, I think might be uh, mistaken. Um, you, you know, Wagner Group uh, was in the headlines, but you also spotted some very interesting, um, you know, potential cyber uh, operation and training cyber, you know, talk, talk to us about the announcement that briefly went up on their website and then was taken down again. Well, Wagner Group opened its uh, high-tech research center in St. Petersburg uh, just recently, and the Wagner Group claims that this center will be basically a site for uh, IT, cyber, and drone-related research and development on behalf of the Wagner Group, as well as on behalf of the Russian military. And so what the Russian telegram uh, uh, channels have spotted very quickly is that Wagner advertised a hackathon The announcement was taken down shortly, but the hackathon is scheduled for later in December, right around Christmas time. And uh, this hackathon will essentially try to find solutions for flying small drones in an EMS-challenged environment when GPS is not available. What's interesting about that is that Wagner expects whatever code, whatever intellectual property will be created during that hackathon to belong to the Wagner group. And some of the Russian Telegram channels have... Uh, indicated that uh, some of that information already exists. And if solutions are created, they should be available for all Russian military units to download and use as they see fit and not just be housed in Wagner proper. But at, th- at this point, uh, Mr. Prigozhin and his organization are making good on the promises that, in fact, that center is going to be one of the focal research and development institutions that would work in finding solutions that could be applicable to the front. And of course, we contrast that development with long-range strikes against Russian military airports that also happened last week. And there are a lot of questions about what actually hit these Russian airports where uh, strategic aviation is based. And there's indications that it could be a, uh, an old Soviet-style Tupolev 141 long-range drone that's many decades old that has been modernized by the Ukrainians, that it could be 
a Ukrainian long-range loading munition that was reverse engineered from Iranian ones or built anew, uh, that it could be a short-range strike by Ukrainian special forces team that was already inside Russia right. that hit these airports. And that's why Russian air defenses didn't have time or could not react properly. Or it could have been something else that hit that uh, that hit those bases. But that basically brings the war home to Russia, not just in areas near Ukrainian border, uh, which have already experienced Ukrainian counterattacks, but uh, it basically puts Russia's European uh, core of the territory, right? The bulk of its population, the bulk of its industry within range of Ukrainian counterattacks, if in fact these were long range drones. And of course, that also raises interesting questions about Ukrainian drone capability um, and their future plans for such subsequent strikes to keep pressure on the Russians in response to Russians attacking Ukrainian civilian energy infrastructure and pressuring the civilian population. Uh, speaking of uh, deeper uh, cooperation, uh, there is, right, I mean, so far, um, China has been trying to maintain some separation with Russia because the United States has put a lot of pressure on China not to supply weapons uh, to uh, Russia. Uh, but now there's some speculation, actually, that Chinese weaponry is making it uh, over to China. Talk to us about the Almazante uh, revelation, um, you know, whether or not that's just speculation or there's something more to that. Well, that's a very interesting story that kind of puts focus on the state and the status of the Russian defense industry as it is trying to turn itself around and provide the necessary equipment and supplies to the um, Russian military. What's interesting about that, and I'll kind of give a little um, preface here, when, when Putin was in Bishkek last week speaking uh, to Russia's allies in Central Asia, uh, he had a press conference and he was asked about the, uh, the state of the Russian sort of supplies and and, and other issues for the military that have been so exposed by, by social media. And he said, well, you shouldn't trust the uh, military correspondence and, uh, and telegram channels. You should only trust me. He kind of said it half jokingly because the question was about Russian supplies to the front. And so uh, Almazante is one of the largest defense enterprises in Russia. It's one of the largest defense enterprises in the world. In late November, they revealed a small quadrocopter, which they named Dabrinya after Dabrinya Nikitich, one of Russia's mythical warriors that defends the motherland against all kinds of inv invaders. And Russian telegram-based commentators, and especially those channels that look for UAV-related data or, or discuss how UAVs are used in Ukraine, they quickly... Uh, criticized Almazante for this quadcopter, which they saw basically a Chinese racing drone in the Russian casing. And this criticism was very public and it was quite visceral. In fact, some of these people didn't spare any words for Almazante or for the state of the Russian defense industry in general. Once again, asking questions, how is it that one of the largest defense industrial complexes in the world is unable to provide its military with small quadcopters uh, therefore forcing a reliance on Chinese-made products. And uh, of course, Almazante had to counter, and they said, okay, well, yes, this is in fact uh, a racing drone as a base for Dabrina. In other words, Almazante admitted that they're playing catch-up. They admitted that they can't compete with China for efficiency and the market size, that they took a Chinese racing drone as a base to build their quadcopter, and in fact, some Chinese-made parts actually made it into their Russian drones, such as, um, I believe it's, it's camera, video, 
and telemetry transmitters, engine speed controller, and antennas are Chinese. And Almazante said, well, the case, the fasteners, the wires, uh, and software are in fact domestic. So Almazante admitted that they're looking to China as an example, uh, they are basing their equipment and uh, their products on the Chinese products as market leading products. But they also admitted that over time, we will kind of wean ourselves off this dependence and we'll start manufacturing um, more domestic products. And of course, that sort of admission uh, generated even more discussion on Russian-based Telegram channels about what kind of quadcopters Russian military actually needs. And there was a lot of sort of debate uh, about the fact that, first of all, Russian military needs thousands and thousands of these drones. And some commentators said we should actually provide the military with two types of drones. One should be completely expandable, completely simple, easy to fly even by inexperienced operators. And another should be slightly more sophisticated that could be flown by experienced drone pilots embedded in special forces or in the artillery units. Uh, So this, this whole public discourse over the quality of Dabrinia quadcopter took place over 48 hours, but a lot of interesting ideas were presented. Uh, obviously, the factory, the Almazante, had to sort of publicly admit that they still rely on Chinese imports and Chinese products, and they look to China for, um, for leadership in this market, but they're basing their success, they're basing their products on market leaders like Chinese racing drones in the hopes of eventually building something of their own. I just very quickly uh, want to take you uh, to the Caucasus. Uh, you've been tracking that region uh, very closely. Uh, and um, over the past few months, there's increasing speculation uh, that Azerbaijan and Turkey uh, are going to move to cut off the southern part of Armenia to connect Azerbaijan proper with uh, the um, autonomous Republic of Nakhichevan, uh, which uh, uh, has been a priority for Azerbaijan as well as uh, Turkey, and also to isolate Armenia by taking away the only um, um, uh, exit corridor, which is the small section of Iranian border. It's long been said the Iranians would never put up with it, but Moscow is distracted, Iran is distracted, and now there's a Turkish three-star in Baku saying that um, you know Turkey intends to hope to rebuild the Azeri military in the Turkish model. What, what do these developments mean, and should we actually be expecting to see another uh, crisis uh, there, because the next one, you know, the fear is that there will be a complete sort of dismemberment of the Republic of Armenia. Well, I, I think we need to kind of zoom out and look at the larger geopolitical picture and consider if there's a resumption of hostilities, uh, what would Russian reaction be? What would Iranian reaction be? Because Russia and Iran are on the side of the Armenian argument as far as Armenia's territorial integrity and the maintenance of transport and economic corridors that connect the region. And obviously, Turkey and Azerbaijan have been strengthening their relationships for quite a while. Armenia is also seen as trying to bolster its drone fleet with uh, possibly Iranian products to sort of counter uh, the advantage that Azerbaijan and Turkey currently have. Uh, But once again, we have to look at at the region and, and now kind of zoom in and say is a resumption of hostilities like that even possible. There's a Russian military base in Southern Armenia. And Iran has long stated that any cutoff of its land access to Armenia would be a red line for Iran because Iran is afraid that it would be cut off from the Caucasus 
because it maintains its own economic corridor to the Black Sea via Armenia and Georgia. Right. And so Iran has held a number of military exercises over the past several years in response to joint Turkish Azeri military exercises. Obviously, both Russia and Iran have, uh, have key priorities right now that they're concentrating on. But I think uh, Armenia as an issue is still at the very top of their agenda, if only because of the checkerboard pattern of different types of alliances and counter alliances in that very region. And of course, any conflict there would pull in other states as well, quite possibly Georgia. So uh, it's, it's a very worrying development, but I think a lot of uh, sort of observations are on, or at least they're going to be made about the state and the status of, for example, Azerbaijani military and the rearmament of the Armenian military but the resumption of hostilities, if it happens, is going to have very significant consequences, not just for Armenia itself, but for countries that have pledged support to Armenia, such as Russia and Iran. And it's not clear how that would unfold. Uh, in which Azerbaijan, backed strongly by Turkey and Israel, uh, by uh, weaponry and advisors, uh, retook most of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So everybody's kind of really interested to see how this is going to play out. Um, Sam, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. And as it's Monday, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Vago. Uh, indeed, always great uh, having you on, and it's good to hear you have a dusting of snow up there in sunny uh, Connecticut. So uh, that's that's great. We have nothing but overcast skies uh, here. It, it uh, is cloudy and, this morning. When, when the sun comes out, it'll be gone, but it's one of those decorator snows today. Exactly. Uh, love, lovely as it is. Um, so uh, we're heading into the holidays, uh, obviously a full schedule uh, this week. Next week, obviously, it's going to drop uh, drop off. Um, we have the House having passed by uh, a vote of 350 to 80, uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which you wrote about uh, extensively last week, or at least twice last week, if memory uh, serves uh, correctly. Um, walk us through what you thought were the most interesting elements of that legislation. Obviously, a climb down uh, on COVID restrictions, uh, which will be problematic for the department, but will then become law. Uh, and so we'll, we'll have to be grappled with uh, $45 billion more than the administration had requested, uh, as well as inflation adjustments, as we discussed on the program yesterday, uh, more F-35s, F-18s. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, there was a lot in here for people to be happy with. Walk us through what you thought was most interesting as the measure goes to the Senate. Yes, I would agree. There, as always, there are always interesting things in the National Defense Authorization Act. And truth be told, I've not read the entire document. As you know, I think it's over 4,000 pages. I, I think what was two points I'd like to make is first, for all its speculation before the NDA came up in the House, there just a lot of speculation about how many different other measures could be hung on the NDAA. Um, everything from legislation, uh, you know, that would enable banking for the cannabis industry to some, you know, extension of the FAA 737 MAX 10 uh, certification process that Boeing has been pushing for. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the House leadership just elected to let, let's get this thing done. <clears throat> and so they pushed it through without 
without a lot of these uh, other Christmas ornaments that, that are usually or typically people attempt to hang on the NDA because it is deemed must pass legislation. Um, I thought within the authorization numbers, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot of surprise there. I think you mentioned some of the individual platforms, um, you know, naval ship construction budget did well. Uh, I did think it was interesting that uh, military personnel was cut in the in the authorization uh, by, I think it was about $2 billion. And it really came out of Army, um, the Army mill per account. And, and that probably reflected just some of the recruiting retention problems the Army has had in FY22 that spill into FY23. Um, so, and military construction, you know, was another area that probably got a little bit more than I've been thinking about, or, you know, even looking at what both Ahask and SAS did with their marks on the, the National Defense Authorization Act. And so, you know, the other maybe interesting point is for all the talk about inflation and inflation pressure, um, you know, what, what really saw the lion's share of the budget increase was the procurement account. Right. Um, and, you know, not so much for operations and maintenance. And, you know, that's a, obviously an area that that is going to see inflationary pressure. So, I don't know, it's kind of business as usual as much as there's all sorts of rhetoric around, you know, oh, look, look at the inflation rate the Department of Defense has to grapple with. And at the end of the day, you know, people in the house kind of plussed up a lot of the procurement, the, the legacy platform accounts. Um, although, you know, they they did add a hefty dose to the RDT in account too, from an authorization standpoint. Now, this is all fine and dandy, but, you know, I think what you really have to look at is what the authorizers, what the appropriators are going to do, not what the authorizers say they should do. Um, well, right. I mean, and that's the reason why uh, we've transitioned from the power in the hands of the appropriate uh, authorizers to power in the hands of the appropriators. Uh, right. What if, uh, you know, your note uh, last night uh, for today was what if there is no FY23 omnibus passed by the end of December? This is an issue we've been talking about on the business podcast and the Washington podcast uh, as well. Um, you know, and investors, you know, as we heard from Ron Epstein last night are noticing, uh, right? So they're yeah. noticing that there's going to be a nice increase, but there are also a little bit of concerns going going forward. Walk us through um, the kind of um, your, your thinking and what the dangers here are, because we heard from Mike McCord on our program uh, from Reagan, that he, he's that's something that he's, he's concerned about, a full year CR. Well, absolutely, Bago. And I mean, I... I'm hopeful, and as you know, the old saying is, "Hope is not a strategy." But I, I'm hopeful that um, Congress will find a way to pass FY23 appropriations before the 117th Congress adjourns. Uh, you know, I think that's something of a consensus view. I don't think the concerns that Ron had mentioned have yet been reflected in defense stock prices. And they certainly haven't been reflected in consensus sales expectations for U.S. defense contractors in 23, 24, and 25. I'm just not aware of anybody uh, taking the stance that there's no way a deal is going to get done. You're going to have a flat comparison FY23 to FY22. You know, to the interview that you did with uh, with the comptroller at Reagan National Defense Forum, you know, his comments that he's going to prioritize military personnel, and I, I would, he didn't say it, but I, I would expect readiness also get prioritized in a CR environment. <clears throat> and that means, you know, in investment accounts will probably bear a larger cut 
than just kind of the flat line number that people might think through a uh, a full year CR scenario, or even a CR scenario that extends into June or July. I mean, at a certain point, I think once you get past April, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of difference to, to what the impact on industry is going to be. I, I really feel the, the problem for investors right now is anybody, you know, looking at kind of what Congress has to get done between now and year end, if the consensus is they're going to get it done, and I'm part of that consensus, well, if they don't get it done, you know, you risk seeing sell-offs in some of these names potentially um, because, you know, it's not a scenario that's been reflected in expectations. And, and when that happens, <clears throat> it would happen in a time period when, you know, liquidity being, you know, the average daily trading volumes you see in a lot of these stocks, it's really kind of dried up, doesn't go away, but, you know, people are away on holiday uh, here in Europe and Asia. I mean, it's just, it's not a good time to have a bad event happen because um, it, it likely would impact price levels. And it happens at a time also when for institutional investors, hedge funds, whatever, their, their portfolios are going to be marked uh, at December 31st uh, for either the year end or quarter end performance. And so it's going to be interesting this week to see how this group performs, you know, do they start getting a little squirrely uh, with, with this risk that, hey, you know, it uh, like yeah, everybody, we're we're not going to get this done by December sixteenth. So what? There's another CR to December twenty third. You know, by the end of this week, I think there's going to be a lot more sweat beads forming on brows, mine included, um, if there's just no sign that that some kind of deal is getting done. Uh, the market last week responded to a higher than expected producer price index. And one of the things that I've been picking up from senior industry executives and CEOs as well is how there could actually be a surge of costs, right? More people are going to the doctor now, uh, for example, that's raising costs for companies during COVID, they weren't. Uh, there are all manner of other costs. There are some uh, senior executives who've mentioned to me, uh, well, you know, uh, some of these costs are going up rather dramatically uh, for us when we ask for bids, even on longer term stuff or even on two year contracts and the like, uh, you know, whether they're 10 percent more, 25 percent more or what have you. Are we underestimating the sort of wave that could be approaching us over the coming months? Right. I mean, people do have recessionary concerns, but are we are, are we looking at a larger surge in contractor costs that we're not? maybe anticipating now? I don't think it's going to be a shock, Vago, where we're all going to wake up one day and go, wow, you know, prices just increased 10 or 20% relative to what people are expecting. I think it's going to really happen on a contract by contract, company by company basis. I really do believe that <clears throat> some contractors have a better beat on this than others. And, you know, the people who are pursuing the mantras of, maximum cash flow, maximum uh, operating profit margins, you know, that probably didn't leave a lot of resiliency in how they can respond to some of these pressures. And, um, or they're going to have to back down from some of the margin expectations that they've set forth. Now, to your point on workforce, you know, my wife tested COVID positive uh, yesterday. So, it's going around again. You know, we're not talking about the same level of symptoms, but that's going to take her out for a couple of days. It, it may well take me out for a couple of days, but uh, I'm not, I don't think we're back to where we were in 2020. I'm more worried about 
just the broader supply chain issues, you know, deglobalization, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, bringing more work back to the United States is going to make the the sector more resilient. But there are going to be costs with that, and right. And I still think, um, you know, there's just it, this isn't necessarily an issue with the largest contractors. It really gets back down to the the third and fourth tier, the mom and pop machine tool shops, et cetera. That, that's probably where a lot of these problems are going to manifest themselves. Um, I've written about that too, but I, I just, yeah. I, and I, and so maybe this all gets back to the CR and the budget, you know, to Mike's comments in your interview, you know, if he's thinking about 5% inflation rate versus, which is lower than CPI, you know, the other thing you might see is if the CPI number really kind of under uh, comes way down, which is in some people's forecast, it could be that DOD is working with a higher inflation rate than when the underlying CPI data suggests. Uh, if things like food prices and rent, which are big components in that index, which are really not that important, they're, they're not as material for the Department of Defense, the way the Department of Defense would look infl at inflation. If those come down, you know, I hope and would think that DOD and Congress would recognize that, you know, you're still going to have you're still going to have cost pressures here that are not related to CPI. So if CPI falls from seven to three or two percent, you know, DOD may still be looking in the industry, may be still looking at at cost growth in the five or six percent range. Right. And the budget, a flat budget in current dollars is going to make that problem even worse. Just really quickly, I mean, the top of the program uh, was with Sam talking about Russia, Ukraine, but just some quick takeaways before we get to what is a very full uh, events calendar as think tanks try to wrap up uh, the year uh, with, uh, you know, on a, on a strong finish. I think the interesting things to watch right now are, you know, in my tabs, I have the 10 day weather forecasts open for Donetsk and Mariupol. Uh, you know, I think I think there's this vision people have of, you know, Russia 1941, these kind of very, very hard freezes. You know, when you look at the 10 day weather forecasts, it's kind of a freeze thaw cycle. It's a lot of what we see, frankly, in the northeast United States. Uh, you can get a cold snap for a couple of days and then it warms up. There's rain um, and they go below freezing at night and then it's above freezing the, during the day. I just mentioned this because I think that's not conducive to major military operations, if there's a really, really hard freeze and the ground uh, it can support wheeled and tracked vehicles, um, that might create a little bit more dynamism, particularly on the Ukrainian side. Um, I do think, you know, there were some reports I saw last week that Germany is, is now moving maybe to transfer Leopard tanks, uh, which I think is a pretty significant change. And on the flip side of this, there's still these reports, of, you know, the ongoing uh, attacks that Russia is waging on Ukraine's infrastructure with, with Iranian-supplied or Iranian-designed drones. And, right. you know, the, this really this war of industrial bases that's going on, I, I, at some point I'm probably going to sit down as things kind of get a little quieter this year, and write about, you know, the lessons that I see from the Russia-Ukraine war. And I think one of the most paramount ones is you really have to pay attention to your industrial base. The Russians, you know, came into this thinking this is going to be a lightning campaign. I think they've really been caught flat-footed from an industrial standpoint. Um, you know, their, their ability to sustain this uh, war is going to be intriguing as we get into 2023. But at the same time, 
you know, it's really interesting from a U.S. and European standpoint, the fragility and the brittleness of our industrial bases. And I, I still tear my hair out when I hear people say that it takes two years to get from contract to actually deliver what to me are fairly simple weapon systems. Um, you know, uh, something has to change here. I think DOD obviously is working that problem. Industry is working that problem. But, um, you know, I might put that at my top of, of lessons learned from a war. It's not anti-tank weapons or air defense. It's you got to have an industry that can can right. pivot and respond. Um, and it's not just the defense industry. It's your it's it's the ability to bring in other companies that can pivot and respond to urgent defense needs. And and that might be one of the most important lessons that I think everybody should be taking away from this conflict. Uh, indeed, and and a big uh, sort of national, you know, harness your national economy in order to be able to do this stuff better. Uh, obviously, as the Russians, uh, as we heard, rely increasingly on uh, Iran. We've got about forty five seconds uh, left. Give us a quick recitation of the events people should be paying attention to, uh, including at Rusi with uh, the chief uh, UK chief of defense staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radican. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting what what uh, he has to say just about kind of the UK defense outlook, new government, you know. Once again, you know, there seem to be funding pressures on UK defense modernization. I hope he makes a, a good defense of why the UK needs to, to hold the line on some of this. Um, George Mason University is their Baroni Center of Government Contracting is holding two events, one on bridging the Valley of Death on December 12th, and then another on the role of merger and acquisition in the defense industry. Um, Henshold, which is a listed company in Germany, is holding a capital markets day in London on December 14th. Be interesting to hear what they say. You know, they're kind of right at the uh, the heart of a lot of the, the German defense spending plans, but more broadly what Europe is going to do. So that'll be interesting to see what they say. Uh, Frank uh, Calvelli, Assistant Secretary of Air Force for Space Acquisition and Integration, speaks December 15th. At, it's a luncheon, so that's not going to be broadcast, but the Washington Space Business Roundtable in Washington, D.C., and then Air Force Associations, uh, Mitchell Institute, you know, they just continue to crank out really excellent work. Um, they're holding an event on December 14th on UAVs for great power competition or great power conflict. Um, so I will read and listen to that with uh, with open ears. Or I will listen to it, not open ears. Um, I will read the report and listen to that event with great interest. Uh, and of course, uh, Carnegie holds on December 15. You write, uh, is uh, Russia, Ukraine a forever uh, war? And that'll be very interesting because Carnegie does great work. Uh, Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much. And all the very best to Ali for a quick recovery. Thanks a lot, Fago. Cheers.